Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with Sydney Kale. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome. Um, would you mind briefly introducing yourself to the audience? Yes, I am Sydney Kale. I just finished up a master's in arts um, in movement, mind, and ecology at Schumacher College in the UK. And I've been on the plant path for a little while, which is why I'm here and I'll be starting a PhD soon. And I'm really excited to talk to you all about the things that I'm interested in and curious about and all of the questions I'm asking, which I don't necessarily have answers for yet, but it's a really interesting journey that we're on. Definitely. And thank you for joining us and congratulations on your master's and your acceptance into a PhD program. It's really exciting. (laughs) So yeah, I'm very excited. (laughs) And having had the privilege of reading your master's thesis, I would say you've got a lot of things kind of like that are really interesting that you're thinking about and also some things that it sounds like you're a little bit of an expert on. So it's really, really exciting. (laughs) Well, that's really nice to hear. I'm excited to talk about it. I haven't had a lot of opportunities like this to just binge speak about the things that I care about. So I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Awesome. Well, we're grateful to have you. So um, the first question that I have for you, what is your or your family or community's history with plants? Have you always grown up with plants or is um, the journey you're on something that came later in life? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've been surrounded by plants my whole life, which I think most people can say that even if they don't realize it. Uh, We've always had plants in the house and my grandparents were pretty avid gardeners and I was a pretty avid hiker and I liked camping at a young age. But I have to admit, looking back, I don't think I ever really noticed plants. I paid pretty little attention to them. I thought they were cool, but they were part of the landscape, kind of like the rocks and the rivers are. And not to say that those things are not important, but I didn't see them as plants, you know. Um, I started getting more interested in plants when I wanted to do sustainable farming. And so I got a job at a plant nursery to kind of kick off that route, which obviously I'm not a sustainable farmer now, but I think it's really cool. But in that job, I started to learn how to take care of plants. And that's where I think the relationship really started because I found that it wasn't until I actually started developing relationships with plants that I could actually care for them. So I started acquiring lots of plants um, and I also got into herbalism for my own health reasons. So plants were starting to show up in my life a lot more, but it wasn't until my most recent master's when I got pushed down this plant path in academia that I actually started building relationships with them and paying attention to them. And they weren't just a hobby anymore or a health kick, but they were actually something that was really important in my life. And now I can't, I couldn't imagine life without plants. And it's really changed the way that, that I exist in the world and the way that I experience the plants in my house or out in my yard or when I go on a walk. They're not just a part of the landscape, but they are something that is intelligent and sentient. And life just becomes a bit more social that way. Even when you think you're alone, you're not. (laughs) Um, A lot of that resonates with me as well. So how would you describe the work you do um, with plants? What do you do and what do they do? Mm, Yeah, I think... So first, just to step back and kind of give you a general view of what I do, in a really broad sense, I'm interested in the relationship between science and subjectivity, which plant studies really lends itself to, which I can go into a little bit later. But I'm really interested in the questions that we ask and maybe even more the questions that we're allowed to ask and how we answer those questions. I think In science in particular, we're becoming a lot more aware of the need to bring stakeholders into research and even view stakeholders as experts alongside 
scientists and academics, especially with the problems that we're facing today that are so complex and they're impacting so many people. But of course, science is a human built system. It was built by humans and it was built for humans. But the stakeholders to the science and the knowledge that we're producing and decisions that we're making, they aren't just humans. They're plants, they're animals, they're the more than human world. And so what would it look like to bring these other impacted persons into our science, into this human system as stakeholders and as experts? And it gets really tricky because it's obviously very messy and very uncomfortable to try to bring something into a system that was never built for it to fit into. Um, so that creates a lot of challenges in this work that I think I'll touch on a little bit later as well. But I think it's really worth it if, if we're going to solve today's problems, we have to reconnect with our kin and reconnect with knowledge sources beyond the human because we can't answer all of the questions ourselves. And so that takes me to my work and to plants. In my work, plants are my teachers. They volunteered themselves to answer these questions with me because I realized I was asking a lot of questions that were just too big for myself and they were too big for science to answer alone. And that was really scary for me because I've always considered science to be my pathway to knowledge and truth, and it suddenly felt very inadequate. So the jumping point for my research started with a curiosity about the love language of plants, which was a question that came to me directly from the plants. And I realized I can't answer that without asking the plants themselves. And how do you even do that? I don't know. How do you ask questions to the more than human world? And how do we receive those answers, especially in a scientific and academic setting? And even more, is it possible for us to make space for these kinds of questions in science? Or will we just determine that they're actually truly incompatible and we need to create an entirely new system to go about this kind of work? So I would say that the plants and I are kind of each other's guinea pigs. We're learning to navigate this space together where we're asking and answering questions together, both as experts. And as a researcher myself, I'm learning what it means for me to be a conduit for their knowledge and their voice and their expertise in a very human space. And how do I translate that into a human space and a human language? And so I think these kinds of questions, these big questions, like what is the love language of plants? They have really interesting implications for science as well as the human condition. Like what does it mean to be a human if suddenly we realize that plants do love and they have a love language? Um, and I think that this also has really major implications for looking at science and research in a more cooperative and yielding way that would blur the lines between researcher and subject and expert, and that goes beyond just working with plants. So I think to kind of boil that down a little bit, working with plants and using plant intelligence studies for me as a lens to these bigger questions, it made a lot of sense. It was a really natural progression. I think it's a lot harder for us to pick up on what would be considered in, in a human context to be nonverbal cues or more than human modes of encounters in a plant versus a mammal, because we're much more familiar with mammals. Mammalian intelligence and creativity and even love in a lot of cases is a lot more recognizable and familiar to us than a plant um, because plant intelligence and creativity and love and communication is going to take on a very plant-like form, which we don't necessarily have a natural inclination to pick up on. And that isn't necessarily speaking for every culture and all throughout history, but certainly in the Western tradition, in the modern tradition, the one that I grew up in, we have largely lost that connection and that language. We don't talk to plants anymore. And I think a lot of people would consider plants to be mute or unintelligent and maybe even unconscious because we can't see that because it doesn't look like what we expect intelligence and consciousness to look like. So in that sense, the plants are my teachers and I certainly couldn't be doing this work without them and figuring out how to talk to them and engage with them. 
one thing as I was reading your master's dissertation or thesis and your written work just so beautifully explained like people in critical plant studies are familiar with are some of these like ways that interacting with traditional western science can be uh, a challenge so I was wondering if you could kind of summarize some of those issues with um, Mm -hmm. traditional methods and how it is as a researcher like how do you kind of like experience those types of either limits or challenges? Yeah, for sure. Um, I will start out by saying that I love science and I still love science. And I think that it's so important and I don't want to lose what science can give us. But I think faced with the issues that we have today, it's really important that we remain critical of the systems in place that are informing us and informing our decisions and see where we can improve and what we can do differently. So for me, a really key component to my research and where I see a big limitation in science is the fact that science can arguably only answer questions that are already answered. And I do wanna say that it's not my idea. I didn't come up with that. I read that a couple of years ago and I remember it verbatim because it was so impactful to me. I had no idea what it meant. But once I started going down this journey and asking these questions, it came back to me and it suddenly made a lot of sense. And regrettably, for about a year, I've been trying to find the source of that quote. And I cannot find it anywhere for the life of me. So if anyone knows, please tell me. But I do, I want to give credit to whoever said that because it wasn't me, but it's so important to my work. Anywho, to me, that means that the way the scientific method works, you ask a question and based off of that question, you develop a hypothesis. And that hypothesis is used to create an experiment that's going to create the conditions for that to happen. And maybe it will, and maybe it won't, but you have to be able to essentially pre-answer the questions that you ask. Even if that answer ends up being incorrect, your prediction was wrong, the way science works, you have to be able to conceptualize an answer to design an effective experiment. And that makes a lot of sense and it works. And we've learned so much doing that, but it does depend on us looking for what we're already familiar with. It's very tethered to human logic and what we can conceive of on our own based on what we already know and understand. But I think it can be argued that the rest of the universe doesn't necessarily function on human logic. And you may, we've obviously discovered things that we didn't know through science. So that is an avenue to do things. But what if I ask a question in science that I can't answer myself prior to experimentation? Or what if the way that science is designed, my question can't be effectively answered? Then what do I do? Do I not answer that question? Do I not ask it? Um, I have a quote that I think I would like, I would like to read it. It's a good one. (laughs) It's from Robin Wall Kimmerer. She did a podcast interview back in 2018 with For the Wild. And I think she explains this really well. She says, one of the reasons science is so powerful and its explanatory power is also its limitation in that we have this strictly materialist reductionist worldview that explicitly separates the scientist as observer and that which we observe, giving us great rationality and objectivity. And it can, if the questions that we're asking are how does it work? If the questions are reductionist, especially essentially true-false hypothesis testing, science is a great tool. But the questions that are important today are of relationship and strict objectivity is not going to get us where we need to be. So this makes me think a lot about my question about what is the love language of plants? That's a really big question and it's so subjective and it's beyond any understanding of plants that I currently have. And if I tried to answer that question on my own, as a human, I can only conceptualize love in the human manifestation. And maybe I would find out that that is true, that love is universal and the way that I experience it and the way that it manifests for me is the same for plants and same for everyone else. 
but it wouldn't be fair for me to assume that plant love looks the same. And maybe I can design an experiment one day and prove that plants do love, but I may never be able to tell you what that love is or what it feels like or why it exists or how it exists. And so it would be really beneficial for me to figure out, well, what if I just ask the plants myself? And so if science were going to help me answer that question or other questions like it, it would have to learn how to accommodate the voice of the plants as well as a new methodology that would yield human logic and expectation. A really great example of this that I love is Monica Gagliano's work, which if you don't know who she is, look her up. She's a really brilliant scientist in Australia that does work with plant cognitive ecology. And she did an experiment where she took young chili plants and she planted them in an experimental box that blocked out all known plant communication pathways. And she planted them with plants that were known to either inhibit or enhance their growth rate. And so the goal ultimately was to see if the young chilies would still be able to sense and be affected by their neighbors and if their growth rate would reflect that. And it did. The experiment was a success, but it was largely contested by the scientific community because she wasn't able to say what that communication channel was, only that one existed and that we have yet to recognize it and study it. And so doing science in that way, it's considered pretty unorthodox. And as she puts it, it violates ontological boundaries of science. And she says in her book, Thus Spoke the Plant, which I highly recommend, that she allowed for the unexpected to happen with no preconception of what one is even looking for. And that was unacceptable from a scientific standpoint, even though from the perspective of the experiment and the boundary set for the experiment, it was a success. So I think looking at the bigger picture, whenever I look at these experiments and these questions, to me, it feels like perhaps the limitation of science isn't just the science itself, but it's the implications that the exceptionalism of science and scientifically generated knowledge has for non-scientific knowers and ways of knowing, or at least what might be considered non-scientific, but others might consider scientific. Um, I don't think that there's anything but maybe, I don't like absolutes, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with science. I think that it gives us so much. But when traditional science and the scientific method is considered the only legitimate avenue for truth, I think we have a problem there. Especially when you consider that, I think it can be argued that truth is subjective and there are so many different avenues to achieving truth. But when we say that if knowledge doesn't fit within the scientific template, if it wasn't acquired and disseminated in a very specific way, that it isn't truth, we end up silencing and marginalizing whole worlds of peoples and knowledge. We've forgotten how to listen to the more than human world. And we've honestly forgotten how to listen to ourselves and our own embodiment and our own somatic experience because we are depending on objectivity and science so much to tell us what we need to know. And I know that's true because I was there at one point. <laughs> um, and this even, you know, labels indigenous and non-Western knowledge as fables and folklore and that it holds no significance to the understanding of the world, at least not in the same way that science does. So I think ultimately this has a lot to do with making space for methodologies that yield human logic and that accept the subjective, the poetic, the experiential, the somatic as valid ways of knowing. And I think probably what we need is a paradigm shift. <laughs> I think that's what the solution to a lot of our problems is. Um, but a paradigm shift that would dissolve that hierarchy of who knows what, who is a holder of knowledge, who is an expert, and what are the acceptable means of knowledge production and experimentation and dissemination? Because we are clenching so tight to objectivity that there are people and means of knowing the world that are being excluded that I think could really change the way that we go about understanding our world. And even the 
the things that we take away from the knowledge that we do gain. And I think they would be at the very least invaluable compliments to science and scientific ways of knowing. It's obviously very tricky because science is a very specific box and it's really hard to try to fit something into science that doesn't want to fit in there, which is the struggle that I have because I think the work that I do, I'm trying so hard to legitimize it through science that sometimes I find that I lose the integrity of what I'm trying to do because I'm trying to make it fit in this box that it was not built for. And so the question becomes, do we expand what science can be and can do to accommodate these non-scientific and non-Western ways of knowing? Or at what point is this no longer science and it's something entirely different? And if it is something entirely different, what role does it play? And also, I mean, just a side question, something that I have no idea how to answer, but how do you maintain rigor in something that has so much subjectivity in it? Because I do think that rigor has value but I don't know what that looks like in a subjective setting. So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that come up that I don't have the answer to, but I think it's really interesting to ponder what science is and what it could be. May I ask which area you're going into next? Like you're the kind of area of study uh, for your PhD? Yeah. Um, so the PhD that I'm looking at is a PhD in wisdom studies, which gives me a lot of wiggle room in what I want to do. Um, and so specifically what I'm interested in is looking at co-authorship with plants in science and academic writing. And I don't know where that's going to take me because when you start a PhD, I, you start doing the research and asking the questions and you learn new things and you end up in a completely different place than you expected. So I don't know where my end point will be, but that's at least my starting point. Yeah, definitely. I know that that was the case for me as well. I'm in philosophy and I started off, I think, in aesthetics and now I'm in environmental philosophy so <laughs> and feminist philosophy so right. it all, yeah it it definitely shifts a lot I I want to send you a reading list because I think you would resonate a lot um I'm not sure if you've read uh much feminist philosophy of science but there's an incredible mm -hmm. world of literature there that like I think can help tease out some options for some of that but like also just feminist philosophers of science are awesome so <laughs> yeah absolutely send yeah. it my way <laughs> and so you had mentioned methodology and one thing that came up mm -hmm. in your master's dissertation or thesis was this really cool I think kind of methodology that you were offering as a possible solution. Um, could you talk about that methodology? Yes. Um, so this is a methodology of co-becoming. And this is a great time for me to give credit to Indigenous ontologies and research methods. Um, a lot of this work builds off of that knowledge and what they've been doing for a really, really long time. Um, they've already been doing, they've been living co-becoming in a methodology of co-becoming. And so what I would not want to do is take indigenous stories and slap my name on them. Um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing or see the world the way that I do without those stories. But I think that it's more important that we use those stories as role models to learn about how we want to exist in the world and give credit where credit is due. So I want to mention that first and foremost, um, a methodology of co-becoming that's been happening for a really long time. I just became aware of it, but it was for me a really natural evolution in my own work in a really natural landing place. Um, and I'm still learning a lot about how to articulate it and understand it. So this is really good practice for me to try to explain to someone what it means. So I am going to take it out for a second and then bring it back in. So just bear with me. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Andreas Weber, but he's a really great philosopher. He's done a lot of work with erotic ecology, which if you don't know what that is, or if it's 
catching your eye, look it up because it's really cool. But I did a course with him called The Ecology of Love. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, you are the universe thinking about itself and experiencing itself. And so is everything else. I could do a whole podcast on that. Just like sit with that for a second, because that's crazy. Um, But something that is born out of that philosophy is that the experience of the self is dependent on the other and vice versa. It's a very cyclical journey. When I experience the other, I experience myself. I travel to the other and I see what the other is and I say, that's you. And then I come back to myself and I say, this is me. And this became a really foundational philosophy for my work and the way that I understand research because I cannot encounter or communicate with plants in any other way. If I'm going to attune myself to my research subject and my research partner, which is a plant, I also have to attune to myself. And yeah, this is especially true with plants because I can't just look at a plant and necessarily translate body language or verbal language into something that I can understand. We have to communicate through embodied communication. And for me, that looks like a couple of things. More often than not, it's a very somatic experience. It's feeling my body, feeling the way that I feel and the energy that's happening in me within the context of an encounter with that plant. And it gets translated into an experience or a message for me. Um, But it also can be a plant projecting noticeably on my consciousness. And that's how I encounter them. And so in order for me to communicate with a plant that way, I first have to be in touch with myself. So interestingly, in this research, I've had to do a lot of mindfulness work because I'm not going to learn how to listen to the plant if I can't listen to myself first, because that's how we communicate. And so in doing research in this way, um, it places the context of the researcher and the knowledge produced within the context of the researcher and the subject as a unit. It's not within the context of a detached researcher that's looking out. So in a methodology of co-becoming, as a researcher, I'm coming into the line of observation as a subject myself because I have to read myself in order to read my partner. And I understand that this research couldn't be produced in any other way, that I have to connect with my subject and learn from my subject. And in that, I'm also experiencing myself. And it's this really, it's this really beautiful experience that I think has changed the way that I think about science. And I think about asking and answering questions because I'm not just an, a detached and objective researcher anymore. I am in the middle of this knowledge creation myself. Um, I think a really great way to put it, Edward Cohn in How Forests Think, a really great book, talks about when encountering the other, I becomes a we that is engaging in a performance of observing and being observed. And that changes who we are within the context of that encounter. So when I'm doing research with a plant, I'm not just Sydney, the researcher observing the plant. I am now Sydney that's within the context of this encounter with a plant and that becomes its own thing, its own experience that's going to change the outcome of the research. Maybe a good way to explain it is even just right now in this podcast talking to you, I, before this, I had a little tea with some of my favorite herbs and I also um, sat down and meditated with my primary plant partner, Damiana. And you have to wonder, you know, if I hadn't connected with the plants before coming onto this podcast, would I be saying what I'm saying right now? Or would I be saying it in the way that I'm saying it? Because I'm not just Sydney right now. I'm I'm Sydney in the context of the plants I'm connected to and even you, Kate, that I'm talking to. Um, Andreas also explains it he gives a really great analogy, which I hope I do justice to, but he talks about when you get into the ocean and you encounter the ocean, that you are experiencing the ocean and the ocean is experiencing you. 
you are feeling the water and the temperature of the water and everything in it. But that's also giving you the opportunity to experience yourself. You're taking on the form of the water and also in the water touching you, you're getting to experience your own skin and your own shape. And so, yeah, it's just this really beautiful image of, of what it looks like to encounter something and and how we throw ourselves into that context in that moment and what that might look like for science or doing research. Um, so practically for me, because I haven't said anything very actionable yet. I've said really great stuff, I hope, but nothing super actionable. For me, that manifests itself in co-authorship, um, not just putting a plant's name down as an author, but literally co-authoring works with a plant. And this is something that people have been doing. Um, an example that I gave in my dissertation was an article that was written about co-becoming with um, indigenous researchers and elders in Australia, and they wrote it with the land that they were on, Bawaka County and Bawaka or Bawaka Country. And Bawaka Country was given lead authorship of the article. And the whole, I mean, the experience of the article and putting the country as the lead author is not just symbolic, but it's very literal because the authors understand that the words that were produced and the knowledge that was produced and what was taken away from it would not exist without the context of the country that they were in. For me, this looked like, it started out very elementary. I didn't even really know what I was doing. Um, I went and spent a few days in West Texas for my master's engaging with the plants and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I started to get these ideas about knowledge as a co-creative process. And I was walking through the desert and I realized if, if I'm going to situate what I take away from this experience as a co-creative process, then I need to give credit not only to the scientific and the academic experts that prepared me for this trip and that the works that they wrote that I've been pondering on and that I would reference directly in an essay, but also to the plants and the place that I'm in that are shaping the experience that I'm having. So every time I had a thought that I felt like either came directly from a plant to me or was rooted directly in the context of the landscape, I would stop and write down that thought, um, write down the name of the plant if it was applicable, my coordinates, whatever felt important to me in that moment, so that I could cite those directly in an essay as an expert about my experience. And I had a lot of fun with that and I played around with it for a long time, but I realized that if I ever came forward with that as a methodology, regardless of whether or not you agreed with what I was doing, the first piece of criticism I would get would be that those encounters would probably be considered a personal conversation, which in academia does not need a formal citation. And so I thought, oh, so this needs to be attached to a published work, an essay, a poem, an article, a piece of art, something that I can either list the plant as a co-author or as the lead author and myself as editor or translator. And that is something that I can reference directly in later works. And so that's what brought me to the co-authorship realm with plants. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that people were already kind of playing with this. Um, but I think it all, the methodology of co-becoming and the practice of co-authorship really boils down to the idea that knowledge is a co-creative process, that nothing that I produce is coming just from me. It's coming from the people before me who I read their works. It's coming from my research subjects. It's coming from the context of, of where I am. And for me to do the work that I'm doing, especially something that's centered around a methodology of co-becoming and not attempt to legitimize that expertise, that would, I don't know what I would be doing. <laughs> um, that wouldn't seem right to me. So I'm really interested in looking more into what this methodology looks like. And I think it's a little bit tricky for me to create a methodology that would be universal, that I could say you do this and this is the outcome that you will get, which is what science wants from you. 
But at the end of the day, there's no one size fits all approach for encountering the more than human world. We might be able to come to the same end, but our means to get there might be completely different. Um, you and I could both sit down with Damiana and have a very different experience just because of our own somatic and creative modalities and the way that we attune to ourselves in the more than human world. So I think it's really interesting and it feels very playful and it feels very artistic, which I think it feels hard to bring into science, but maybe science needs that a little bit. Um, and, you know, if if one day I come to the conclusion that it isn't science, that it's something else, that's fine. I'm open to it. But this is kind of where I'm at with everything at the moment. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for walking us through that. Um, I think it's it's hard sometimes to, not hard, it can be challenging to like, you know, walk through those lived experiences, especially under the different types of pressures that we have as researchers, you know? So it sounds like a really great an interesting way that you kind of navigated that for sure. And it sounds fascinating. I definitely learned from your research and have a bunch of things I want to look into more now. So yeah, okay. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really excited for you um, as you embark on the PhD and yeah, I hope it continues to kind of grow and, and yeah. So a favorite plant and if so what is it yes um I love and I hate that question because it's really hard <laughs> I guess I if I had to pick one it would of course be Damiana that was the plant that I wrote my master's dissertation with and it's the plant that I have the closest relationship to and she's been a great research partner. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this research without her because she really pushed me in this direction and opened a lot of doors for me to, to understanding what I'm trying to understand. Um, she's also very persistent. It, you, I could not ignore her. <laughs> and it did make a lot of sense considering what I was looking at, which was what is the love language of plants? Because she, she is a plant that is a heart opener and she loves a lot. And she's taught me a lot about how to love myself. Um, you know, like telling me to dance around the house or just sink into the couch, you know, she's been, she's been there and I think she's going to be around with me for a long time. <laughs> One thing that the networking with plants in the Anthropocene is really interested in is kind of like a group or a hodgepodge collective is um, respect and mm -hmm. figuring out what having respect for plants is, what it looks like. And so in your methodology and in your kind of broader just relationships with plants um is respect something that comes up and if so what is it and how is it embodied yeah i i respect plants a lot more than i used to now that i've been doing this work i don't think i was ever disrespectful for plant to plants but i didn't see them and i didn't notice them and i do now and i think that's that sounds so simple, but I really think that's the first, the first step to respecting plants. And I really think that's what they would want for us is to see them for who they are, um, or even just attempt to see them for who they are. Even if you don't get it right the first time, um, they're not it's, they're thems, they're persons, and they're smart, and they're intelligent, and they're creative, and they're here. Um, we plants are everywhere and you can't go through life without interacting them they make up what like 90 percent of the earth's biomass some number in there 
we eat them. Everyone eats them. You might choose not to eat animals, but everyone eats plants. Um, Michael Martyr, the plant philosopher <laughs> that we all know and love, um, he said something really beautiful about plants, about how they articulate the earth and the sky. They take these raw materials and they turn them into something that's beautiful and something that's edible. And so I don't think that respecting plants means not eating them or, you know, not picking a flower if you see one that you really love or, you know, not walking them on them because those are impossible things. Um, but I think it all comes back to, to gratitude um, for being grateful that they're here and being grateful for who they are and taking the time to, to try to understand who they are and not just looking at them as a food or as an ornament or as just another element in the landscape, but as something that is that is very real that we can connect to in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, another thing that the network is interested in that kind of like helped bring us together initially was an interest in education um mm -hmm. and an interest in kind of like considering ourselves as teachers as students um and what role education has in our relationships with plants and so I was wondering um if you consider yourself a teacher if you consider yourself a student and either what role education has played or does play, um, or <clears throat> you envision will play um, in your relationship with plants and how that education works well or could be changed or anything like that. Yeah, um, I would probably consider myself a student first um, I probably have, you know, I obviously have some things I can share with people. I'm doing it now, but, but I am a student and I have a lot to learn. Um, I was a teacher to myself. It felt like for a little while. And I think that was the first time that I saw some gaps in science and in traditional environmental studies education. Um, in my first master's, which is an MS in environmental studies and sustainability, it was very like science business leadership oriented, which was great. And I learned a lot, but it was in that program that I was introduced to ecofeminism and it was not introduced to me through the curriculum. I happened to stumble upon it in doing research for my um, environmental economics course. And I thought that it was so interesting and it resonated with me so much. And so every class that I had, every paper and assignment that I did, I somehow worked it into ecofeminism and gender studies. And I just thought to myself like, wow, what if I had learned this when I was an undergrad or in high school? What if I was introduced to more of these environmental philosophies? Because I wasn't. And I'm so grateful that I was. And I eventually learned about it and it's, been a piece of the puzzle to get me to where I am now. But I think there is a real lack in mainstream and traditional education and these kind of um, fringe philosophies and fringe ideas that I think what I would have gotten out of my education would have been so diff different if I had been introduced to that. Um, but now I'm here, I'm learning all about that stuff. And I think, and I think it's really great. And I think one of the biggest things for me has just been learning how to learn from the plants themselves, um, which, yeah, I, I couldn't be doing this without that. And I think it would be so interesting in education to see more of these concepts being presented, even just like an environmental studies class where you ask the students to go out and, you know, try to write a poem or an essay with a plant and just see what that feels like. And maybe you don't like it and maybe you don't get it at the first time, the first time, but for someone in education to present that idea to you that you could do that and it wouldn't be weird and it might actually be really cool for you. That would be, that would be such a big deal, I think. Um, 
And at the end of the day, when we start expanding our definition of who a teacher can be, I think that fosters a lot of respect and a lot of care for the more than human world, because I see them as my teachers now. And that obviously changes the way that I interact with them and the way that I think about my yard and <laughs> and the hikes that I go on and the trees that are out there and the flowers. Um, yeah, so probably student first, teacher second, I suppose. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us that you didn't get a chance to mention? Yeah, I think um, I think I would like to share briefly just what the plants taught me since I've been talking to so much about them being being teachers and they've given me so much more than just my academic pipeline. <laughs> Um, but they've taught me a lot about what it means to be a human, and they taught me a lot about what it means to be me. I think one of the big things that I've learned from the plants is that human and being do not have to be coupled, <laughs> that humans are not the only ones that be, <laughs> um, that plants are intelligent and creative, and so so are so many other things. And I think that's helped me a lot to open myself up to the world and what it means to be entangled and just recognize that I am entangled and I do I do share kin with a lot of what's out there that I didn't see as my kin. You know what I mean? Um, but I've I've had to learn how to tune into myself and tune into the rest of the universe and what that looks like. And I think Lindsay French, an artist from Canada, she's done a lot of stuff with plants. She said something that really resonated with me that for a plant, being in a space can be communication enough. And I've learned so much from that because I'm a very active, very intentional person, especially when it comes to my communication and the way that I learn and the way that I share. And especially once I started going down this path, I was initially very stressed out because I was like, oh no, there are plants everywhere. Do I need to be talking to all of them? Like, do the plants in my house, do they feel loved? Do I need to talk to them all the time? That feels very overwhelming, especially for an introvert like me. And especially someone who Plant communication and more than human encounter is not something that necessarily comes natural to me yet. I'm still learning and I'm still tuning my body to those experiences. And so sometimes it can feel like more of an energy suck than an energy fill. And sometimes I just don't want to do it. But the plants have taught me that sometimes just opening yourself up to the presence and the energy of others, to the chatter of the universe, to gratitude, to just the things that you're feeling and not having to do anything with it, not having to label it, not having to act on it, but just listening and being open to it. That can be such a powerful, but such a simple experience. And it, it has taught me so much about myself because I have to be open and attuned to myself first. And in attuning to myself, I've learned that I'm entangled and attuned to everything else. And it really changes the way that I walk through the world and that I, the way that I experience the world and consider myself a social being. Social means so much more now, <laughs> um, but I think it's a really, a really beautiful experience. And even if you don't wanna have a conversation with a plant, just taking a second to feel, to feel your body and feel the space, sometimes that's enough. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's really wonderful. Um, and if people want to follow your work or follow your journey into the PhD and all of the other wonderful things that <laughs> you're working through, how can they follow you? Yes, a great question. Um, I'm not on social media. I don't have a website. Maybe one day. Um, I do love talking to people though. So you're welcome to send me an email. I love getting emails. My email is sydneyandkale at gmail.com. Sydney spelled like Australia, S-Y-D-N-E-Y. 
Um, so you're welcome to send me an email. Let me know your thoughts, your questions. If you didn't agree with something, that's fine too. If there's something that I missed, let me know. Um, you can access my dissertation publicly through the U University of Plymouth. You should be able to find it. If you can't, send me an email and I'll send it to you. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much um, for joining us today. This has just been such an incredible experience to connect with you and also learn from you um, and hear your thoughts. And I'm just really grateful for it. So, Thank you so much. I'm so glad that I was able to share and that you opened the space for me to do that. So thank you. No worries. I hope that this can also open doors like if there are people out there that they'll connect with you that, you know, are interested in your work and you can continue those conversations as well. So. Yes, absolutely. I love collaboration. I have an art project that I want to do soon where I want to try to translate, ask plants the same question. What is your love language? And instead of trying to put it into words, like I did in my dissertation, try to put it into art which is interesting. So if you ever want to collaborate on something, please let me know. And maybe I'll have a website or something more public that you can follow me on. But for now, it's pretty rudimentary. Email is the way to go. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> so yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining us this week on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our group, feel free to visit networkingwithplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next week or next time we connect, um, go out and kind of like be with some plants. Open up to some co-authorship. The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.